This episode is brought to you by Crab Oz, hard-wearing apparel for the crabbing enthusiast. Join our membership program to receive members-only designs each quarter. Find us on Instagram at CrabOz, C-R-A-B-A-U-S, or online at www.craboz.com. Welcome to All Things Small Biz, a podcast to help you take the leap and run your own business from someone who has done it themselves and wants to share what they learnt with you. Hello and welcome to the All Things Small Biz podcast. My name is Sarah Hales, your host, and today we will be talking about solving problems for your clients. We'll introduce our amazing guest, Julia, from Sample Room. But before we do, as always, we'll welcome in Brian for a little chat. Brian, how are you today? Brilliant. Brilliant. That sounds positive. That's what it is. You take (laughs) all these little tips we get over the weeks of podcasting, and one of them is positive mindset. How do you go with that? Look, I am positive Lee, I'm positive 100%, 95% of the time. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I wasn't yesterday. I was having a, I was having a Debbie Downer day. I didn't notice. <laughs> Feeling good today. Hey, I'll tell you something that I've been laughing about today while you've been at work. That I'm not here. <laughs> remember, when we were, remember when we were at Noosa oh. and we were walking down the street and I said, hey, that's Mitch Larkin. And you said, bullshit. That's not him. That's not him. And you argued and argued and argued with me until we got to the restaurant and I Googled him and you were like- That was him. (laughs) But to my defence, on TV, he looks a lot bigger than what he actually is. Yeah, no, he was- um, Well, I still think he was a big guy. He's just not as tall. I just forget that I'm taller than most people. Yeah, you're pretty pretty tall, Bri. Mm. So, wins of the week. We've had quite a few wins this week. Yeah. We've uh, rebranded Crab Oz. Yes, we've ha- had a, a changing of the guard. <laughs> and um, we've launched a subscription to our Crab Oz VIPs, member only. Special guests only. That's right. So, if anybody wants to go and jump on Brian's business, it's at Crab Oz, C-R-A-B-A-U-S. And he's launched a membership for some pretty cool... Crabbing apparel. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have been so busy with clients in my coaching course that I have had to expand my offering because I'm finding that I've got beautiful clients who are not yet online and therefore need assistance to get their business online. So they're sort of in one container. Then I have the businesses who are already online who are needing help to increase their sales uh, and their traffic. So they're in another container. And then Mm -hmm. I actually have a few people that have graduated from that and we are continuing to work together to scale. So I've got all kinds of things going on in my little coaching world. So you're calling them in container. Are they in shipping containers? (laughs) Well, it's just the word I was using to describe. And is the first- course is that for pre e pre e people pre e-commerce yeah mm, yeah i suppose i suppose yep are they launching into online launching into online it's more about the website because as far as i'm concerned you shouldn't build your business on someone else's platform you know so if you're if you're heavily relying on Instagram or on Facebook, mm-hmm. for example, or yeah. TikTok or Snapchat or whatever else it is that you're looking at, you're essentially relying on those platforms to bring traffic to your business. And that's not a really good plan. You need yeah. to have your own landing page. So, yeah, you could say pre-e-commerce, but some of these people think they're online. They're just not yet realizing that if Facebook goes down for a day like it did last year or if Facebook decides that it doesn't want to, you know, share a specific business, a.k.a. the media, like it did a year ago, your door is shut. So, you're best to look after your own backyard and get your business online. Mm. And one thing I have learnt from listening to multiple podcasts is that get on as many platforms as possible 
if not every platform. Yeah, and I do teach that in my course. But what I like to say to people is to claim your online real estate. So, you know, get your name on TikTok or get your name on Snapchat Mm -hmm. or wherever else you need to be. Have your name on Google My Business. But I don't believe with the number of platforms that are out there that it is possible as a, you know, as a single business owner to, or the only, you know, the main person in the business to do all of those platforms well. Mm. So, I think that you should focus on, you know, one or two of them and do those really well before you start to expand and try to master the others, because otherwise you will do none of them well. So, you're best to keep your focus on- Stuff the you're doing great. The, yes, and, and grow. And as you grow your business, and perhaps you can bring someone else into the business to help you with that. But otherwise, it becomes just so overwhelming with all of the stuff you've you know, got yeah. to generate to keep on top of it. I suppose that's pretty much like my other win of the week that I'm going to talk about here real quickly is that I've been to gym two weeks in a row. <laughs> Consistent. And, and then if you go to gym and you just try and do every single weight there, yeah, you, you're going to fall over. So, you just do a few here and there, get warmed up, and then build yourself into getting lots of them. Mm, okay. Good good tip, Brian. Have good you seen tip. any results lately? Like, so, you've been twice, once last week and once this yeah, week. Yeah, so I said I've been two weeks in a row. I went five times last week. And I walked five times. Okay, show off. Well, have you seen any result? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, let's go. Get on with the question. Are you crankier? Yeah, I have been cranky. (laughs) All right, question time. Mm -hmm. Solving people's problems. Mm -hmm. What three points could you give to to someone who's having problems in their business? Look, this is probably a perfect question for me, actually, because when I am looking at the courses that I offer- I try to break it down to mm. what are the three biggest biggest problems that that person is experiencing and how can we solve those problems for them. Yeah. So, you know, earlier I was talking about how we have a course to help people to build their website, like to go- actually take their business online. Yep. I think the three biggest problems for that person are a fear uh, of the tech or a bit of an overwhelm, like can they do it? Do they actually have the skills to build their own website? Of course. I think that um, there's a little bit of a clarity issue with their brand. I think sometimes people are a little bit scared to niche down for the fear that they might miss out on a specific customer. They try to be everything for everyone instead of being really specific about what they sell and who they sell it to. And then the third problem is obviously traffic, because if they don't have a really good online presence, then they're not going to be getting that traffic through, which will eventuate into sales. When you move up into what we call grow, which is where you have an online store, you have a website, okay, but you're looking to grow that side of your business and to make more sales. I think mm-hmm. that the the problems are sort of similar, but they're just in a bit of a different order. They still can have a little bit of an unclear brand identity. So, you know, moving more into the look and feel of their website, the photos they're using, the continuity across all of the platforms. So, it's really... It's, it's taking that same problem and going a bit deeper, I guess, because when you're first starting out on a website, you need to kind of keep that really simple. And then when you're starting to grow your business and you're showing up in more places, you need to make sure that you've got that clarity of brand across all the different platforms. There's still a little bit of a tech fear or that overwhelm there, and that might start to come in around your Facebook ads or your Instagram ads or how to make a TV ad. I mean, I've done that. We've had an ad on TV, you know, so there can still be that little bit of overwhelm about what to do next. Mm -hmm. And then the same problem again with the lack of traffic, because as your brand grows and you have to carry more stock and you might have employees, you need to increase your sales and increase your profit 
to be able to cover those additional costs of growing your brand. So, Mm -hmm. it's always good to have that conversation with people and to realize that it doesn't actually matter if you are a small business who's just starting out Mm -hmm. or if you are like a massive business who, you know, is national or perhaps even international, Global. global, the problems are the same. You need to attract a customer. You need to convert the customer into a sale and you need to deliver on what you said you were going to do. And the problems don't change from when you're a small business to when you're a big business. Yeah. It's the depth of the problem, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Yeah. But just diverging a little bit there. I was just having a think because I was listening to something on the way to work today and it was about converting sales. Yeah. And they were talking about gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. Does your e-commerce programs or courses, do they delve into the um, sort of like the sales, like that actually how to get people to to want to buy your thing and, and change their mindset instead of saying, hey, oh, look, that, someone's just trying to sell me another shirt. Does your course provide something where it says, hey, this shirt, you need this shirt, this is what you know, changing their mindset. Oh, yeah, definitely. We definitely start to talk about that sort of thing. Um, And, you know, we get deeper and deeper and deeper into those topics the more time we spend together. Mm -hmm. But marketing is not about whether a person needs something. Marketing is about uh, how well the product solves that person's problem and how they feel about it. So, it's not really as to whether or not they need it. It's does it solve their problem and does it evoke a feeling in them where they have to have it? So, if we were looking at my little business on the side, you can help solve this problem for me. Okay. I'll try. If a person has a fishing shirt. Yes. Right? And there's a lot of fishing shirts out there. Uh-huh. If mine's the exact same quality, the exact same material, it's the exact same price- how do I get them to buy mine and not not the competitors? Well, this is this is what I was talking about earlier about um, some people can be a bit scared to niche down too far because if you're you know marketing your product as a fishing shirt, you're in a very very big pool of people. You've got some big name brands who are in competition with you, and you've probably got some cheaper products, right? Mm-hmm. So. When we talk about niche, say, for example, the general term for your shirts is a fishing shirt, Mm -hmm. but yours are more targeted towards people who like to go crabbing. Yeah. Because when you go into the shops, you can barely find a shirt that's got a crab on it. So, you are niching down and targeting a specific person who is looking for crab. I'm thinking that I'm targeting... The real hunter-gatherer. Are you, righto? That might be another brand people keep an eye out for. Okay. HG, hunter-gatherers. Yeah, but you see what I'm saying, though, is that, you know, so say me even with West of the Waves, if I was to go to Google and type in Australian-made white linen dress with pockets, even though I've been very, very specific with what I'm looking for, the pool of items that might get returned in that search is huge. Mm. If you go to Google and type in, I want a UPF 50 fishing shirt with a collar and a phone pocket, the things that were going to get returned to you, there'll be thousands and thousands of them. But when you start putting, you know, a bit more niche into it, crab, crabbing enthusiasts, crab hunters, crab pots, crab pictures. Legends. You start to be able to drill down that little bit further and and as a business, you will come up higher in the search engine because you are a more niched down specific product. Okay, that's good. Yeah. So, while we're there, uh-huh. I've got two new ideas Okay. for names of apparel or- or a business ideas, and one is, now I've just thought of it while we were talking, the okay. HGs, the hunter-gatherers. Righto. Or the other one I've been thinking about, mangrove roots. Oh, yeah. So, if anyone can uh, get onto our website, maybe you can do like a, you know, one of those things you put on a Instagram? Poll. Instagram poll, yeah, and they can go mangrove roots or 
or hunter-gatherers and they can go yes or no or whichever one they like more. Okay. You're I just, like it, people. You're just creating more work for me here. Yep. Um, but, you know, just to drop it in as well, if anybody ever does want to get in contact with us and we do get quite a few messages through to our social media, um, we're online on Instagram at the Ecom Hub. It's um, the underscore E-C-O-M-M underscore H-U-B. And the only people that check that Instagram are myself and Brian and we will definitely get back to you and we love hearing from our listeners. Yeah, mostly it's Sarah and then she just says, hey, Brian, check that out. <laughs> I'm now, that's pretty true. we've spoken enough about me today. Yeah. Now it's time for your chat with Julia. This episode is brought to you by Crab Oz. Hard-wearing apparel for the crabbing enthusiast. Join our membership program to receive members-only designs each quarter. Find us on Instagram at CrabAus, C-R-A-B-A-U-S, or online at www.craboz.com. So I know I briefly introduced Julia at the top of the podcast, but I just wanted to talk a little bit more about her. Julia and her husband, Daniel, live in downtown Melbourne. Um, They've endured the highs and lows that is COVID, but more importantly, they run an absolutely amazing business called Sample Room. Julia is someone that I work very closely with and have done for quite a few years, and I can absolutely tell you that I wouldn't be where I am without her. So Julia... Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast today. And could we maybe get you to start by explaining where you're based? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Sarah. It's so lovely to chat with you. Uh, we are based in Collingwood <laughs> in Melbourne, as I said, downtown Melbourne. So we're quite close to the city. And it is the original, I guess, garment district of Melbourne, uh, where a lot of factories were close to Richmond. So, yeah, in Victoria. Oh, that's amazing. That's quite interesting. I didn't know that about Collingwood. Bit of history. Yes. And Julia, can you tell the listeners uh, what you and Daniel do during the wintertime? Because I also think that that's pretty exciting. Look, we are very fortunate and it really comes from um, part uh, passion. Daniel and I are very keen skiers and Daniel has in his past life been a professional ski instructor for about 10 years. So he used to travel between California and Australia and teach skiing at a very high level. He's sort of like qualified at at the assessor level for about four um, alpine disciplines. So he teaches on the weekend a group called a master's ski group. So we actually head up to the mountains every week, generally on a Thursday afternoon during winter. So I often say to my clients, for six months of the year, I work seven days a week. And for six months of the year, I work three and a half days a week. Oh. But um, this year, we were very fortunate and we got stuck up at Mount Buller for lockdown, for the most recent oh. lockdown, I should say. <laughs> of our six (laughs) and felt very fortunate. It's an absolutely beautiful place. It's my happy place and Mm -hmm. it's a really special place to be and a great community of people. So we were able to work from up there. So we're very fortunate. We have an amazing team in Melbourne, a team of 10, and they kept the show running. We still spoke every day and I still work just as much, but it was just remote. So very fortunate. Oh, that is. It was amazing. I loved chatting to you while you were up there because we do chat pretty often. (laughs) So, Julia, let's get back to sample rooms. So, what are some of the pros and some of the cons of living where you live in Melbourne? Well, there's not really a lot of cons. I'm originally from Adelaide. And Mm -hmm. when I chose to travel interstate to further my career, I was choosing between Sydney and Melbourne. And I chose Melbourne because I had just uh, spent two years overseas in London. And so Melbourne felt more comfortable to me. And it's a really, I'm really glad I made that choice. Mm -hmm. It is really where the manufacturing hub happens and the small designer network happens. Sydney tends to be the place for larger designers. It's not as set up for smaller designers as Melbourne is. So uh, it's been an amazing place to live. I absolutely love it. I'm very fortunate to live five minutes away from work. So I get to walk to work every day. You know, apart from living in New York, I think it's a good second. (laughs) (laughs) I went to New – I've only been to New York once and, oh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But it's just on all the time. There's no downtime. And for a country girl like me who was coming from a place where when the sun goes down it's completely dark and you can see all the sky – 
all the stars in the sky and then you're in New York and it's as if it never actually gets dark. Absolutely. And I had heard from somebody many years ago that if you live in New York and you're dreaming about moving to the Hamptons, it's time to move out of New York because it is high energy all the time and it does burn you out. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get into talking too much about current day sample room, can we just talk a little about your past? So you need to have some pretty amazing skills to do what you do. So can you tell us a bit about your experience before you started your own business? Yeah, fantastic question. Look, a a pattern maker I really feel is born. They're not made. Uh, And Mm -hmm. it really comes down to the way uh, a pattern maker thinks. I have been sewing since before I was 10. And the reason I know that is because I won a trophy in our local show when I was 10 years old for making a patchwork quilt. And my mum taught myself and my sisters, my sisters have got no interest in that side of creating things, but I just took it and ran with it. And I, she told me I had a lot of patience. So I was able to mm. sit there and sew. And I was making my own clothes by the time I was 12. It's just something I really love doing. I love that creative expression and just creating something. But we were a very crafty family. She would often do craft with us. So it was not unusual for us to make things. So then when I was going through school, fashion was really what I wanted to do. But I think when I reflect on this, which I do quite a bit because the fashion industry is a very tough industry and I have a lot of parents come up to me and tell me that their daughter or son wants to be in fashion. And I always say to them, do they like shopping or do they like making things? And if they like making things, then they go into the technical side. And that is a, I guess, a more solid career, although there's not a lot of options for somebody. So anyway, if I if I was at high school now, I would possibly have gone into engineering or architecture because the way a pattern maker yes, thinks, they yeah. are both creative, visual and mathematical, which is a really unusual combination. But anyway, that was my time in my life and I've had an amazing career. So I studied fashion school in Adelaide and then I started working in the industry and I've worked in a huge range of the industry from wetsuits, sportswear, swimwear, wedding dresses, high-end fashion, offshore development, local production. I've managed businesses and source factories over in China and Fiji. It's just been a really a wild ride really. And I've always run my own business on the side of that in the evenings and the weekend. So some years ago, I ended up back in Adelaide for a couple of years and I started up the first version of Sample Room and I was working for George Gross and Harry Hu and Liza Emmanuel and Little Potty Red Shoes, which is now Australian fashion labels. So it really gave me a bit of a taster of this was a need in the market for as needed service so that people could use that product base and also use the years and years of knowledge that I had in the variety of products because a lot of what a pattern maker is doing is not just creating that template, they're also understanding what could go wrong, what's going to make it easier in production, what's going to reduce your production cost. We're really troubleshooting the whole time and I I love that side of it. I love working on a variety of products. Uh, You can be a pattern maker within one business but then you're only working on one product Whereas I love the fact that behind me, I have men's swimwear, I have women's swimwear, women's tailoring, little girl's trinket carrier for a dress. I can work on a variety of things in a day, which is amazing. Oh, absolutely. And you've probably given me a little insight into why I am where I am, Julia, because whilst you say it's an unusual combination, as a little girl, I made a lot of things more so with my grandma, mm-hmm. uh, but I remember making my own shirts and, you know, doing lots of sewing. Yeah. And um, it was something that I probably would have liked to have done, but I ended up as an engineer. So <laughs> I think <laughs> that was a good go. path to take. And we do work with a lot of people in corporate environment. It's probably one of our largest, I guess, client base for our fashion label launchpad are people who may have wanted to study fashion and work in the industry, but they were push slightly into engineering or banking or finance or law um, or -hmm. even medical, lots of doctors, and they get to a point in their life where they think, no, I I want something else. I want something creative. I'm sort of in a position where I don't have that creativity. I'm managing people. So we absolutely love that we can provide that service to help people follow that dream and that passion. Yeah, amazing. So in your own words, can you tell us how was Sample Room started? How was it born? 
Well, good question. How was it born? <laughs> I think it was born because I moved back to Melbourne from Adelaide. So I mentioned I went back to Adelaide for a couple of years and realised Adelaide was not for me. And then I moved back to Melbourne and thought, I don't really want to work in the industry. I do find elements of the fashion industry to be um, really testing. It can be a bit of a nasty industry at times and a bit bitchy. And, yeah. and I just didn't want that culture in my business. I didn't want that culture every day. I had experienced it before and I really wanted to create an environment for myself to enjoy coming to work, but also to yes, create an yeah. environment that other people could enjoy their work and grow and learn. And I'm really, really strict with that. If I have somebody who could be amazing at what they do, but they're not the right cultural fit, then it's not going to work here. Um, there's a lot of pressure in this workroom. So I start off the business. I'm also a, a sample machinist. So I'm a pattern maker who knows how to sew samples to a commercial level, which is also unusual. Uh, that's because mm -hmm. during my career, I've spent time as a machinist in bridal wear and I've managed businesses and a whole range of things. So I could start off just by myself. So I started in amazing. the Brunswick Business Incubator 13 years ago now. Oh, that's amazing. It's a long time ago. I was working with a couple of friends who had also moved over from Adelaide. We all moved over together. Uh, we just shared an office space and then as the business grew, I think I moved into about four or five different office spaces within that incubator as the business grew and I bought on a team and then I had two offices and um, and then That's amazing. moved out. So the business incubator is a space where you can sort of, you know, almost rent a room to kickstart mm. your business? Yes, exactly. So you've got some shared facilities such as a reception desk that can accept and send out mail. Uh, you've got a shared tea room and bathrooms, but you rent a room. And the particular mm -hmm. business incubator that I was in was really set up for people who had machinery because I couldn't just grab a desk space as you can from WeWork or any of the many shared office spaces there are. I needed to have a room that could hold a big cutting table and five industrial sewing machines and a plotter. And so it was oh, a little wow. bit different in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think, you know, like the, those facilities being so um, rural, they're things that we do not have access to. So yeah. that is extremely fortunate as well. So yeah, good to be able to set up like that. It was amazing and it was a, a really lovely environment as well because everyone was starting out. So, yeah. you know, you're grabbing a cup of tea and you're having a chat with someone and you discover that there's a seminar series to go to to talk about business or you can use the boardroom for a presentation which you would never be able to afford if it was your own office space. So it was really great start. I think I was there for about five or six years and they normally have a bit of a limit on how long you can stay there. And then you need to hatch and fly into the big wide world of business. And that was very scary. It's like, oh, can I afford the rent? That's a big commitment. You know, a two yeah. plus two or a three plus three rent. And then you do it and it works. You know, you just need to sometimes jiggle the business around and, and see how you can grow the business in the way that's needed. Oh, amazing. And what type of problems do you fix for your customers? Well, we oh, lots of problems we fix. <laughs> it's probably even more so uh, like, you know, even what sort of services do you offer? offer? We are the only full end-to-end -end development and manufacturing house in Australia. And there's a few reasons for that. It's a really tricky business to run and manage mm. and take somebody who's got the whole gamut of skills to be able to employ people, to understand what they do, to manage that process or jump in and do it if somebody is away. And so it's unusual to find someone who has such an experience of local production and development. Most people who are my age who worked in Sydney and Melbourne really were caught up in the offshore manufacturing wave that happened in the late 80s. Yeah. And so they understand how to communicate with a factory offshore, how to create a tech pack and send it offshore and go through that fitting process. But they don't understand how to put together a make process or speak to a machinist about being more efficient in how they're working or understand what a pressing machine does. Mm. So it's quite a different yeah. skill set. And also there's a very different skill set and understanding who are the suppliers that are needed and the, you know, where to get labels and how do you source fabric and all of those sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. So what we offer for our clients is really a hassle-free process um, in that yeah. development 
combined with the knowledge base. For a lot of people, if they are looking for a pattern maker, they are possibly just a standalone service. So you you would have your pattern made and then you would take it over to a sample machinist an hour's drive away and then go back to the pattern maker to have that fitted and then repeat that process. And you're doing all the running around and explaining. Then it would go to a separate person to grade the pattern and then you go to a separate person to manufacture. So there's a lot of yeah. running around. Whereas what we a offer headache. is... A huge headache, isn't it? Especially if if you were interstate. Yeah, absolutely. Like somebody exactly like me. Yeah, or you're busy. You know, there's a lot of running around and sitting in a car if you're doing that. So what we're able to do is basically have that initial design meeting and the next time you see us, you see a finished garment that has had the problems ironed out. We've troubleshooted a whole lot of things in that meantime to get the best result possible for your design. And then Mm -hmm. we make the alterations. And again, the next time we see you, there's another garment that has been made with those corrections. And then we go into grading and markers and then into production. So it's quite a smooth process. And for all that we talk, Sarah, and the amount of time that we have worked together, we have still never met face to face. Which I think is incredible. (laughs) I do too. I talk about this quite a lot. Is that you know, and I'll move on to these next questions, but I have only ever made one garment offshore. Um, and then I moved uh, to work with you guys. And because we now have my sort of block patterns and we have my style and my fit down pat, we can basically, I draw something, I send it to you. We have a meeting about it. You guys sort of go past the twelve um, section and we end up with a first sample almost every time. We try it on down there on a model and have a meeting over Zoom you post it up to me, I try it on, we have another Zoom and generally we're on to like a final sample from there, which I just think it's it's amazing, but it probably comes down to the communication and the communication is just something that you cannot have offshore. I could never achieve that if I was working with someone offshore, there's not only the boundaries of distance and time and postage, but there's language and there's, you know, body shape and there's customs and, you know, all sorts of things that just make it so, so difficult. There is so much involved. And we often have people say to us when they first see their garment, they are amazed. They're like, oh my goodness, it's like you've read my mind. I can't believe it. Tears (laughs) of joy. We love the tears. Tears of joy we love. But there is a process that everyone goes through. And if you think way back to when you started in the Fashion Label Launchpad, when we talked about who is your customer and how to explain that. So everything that we do in relation to you, we have in our mind a really clear picture of your customer because that's how we have trained you to, to teach us. Yeah. And that is absolutely critical because you can come in and say, I want a shirt and it's clear in your mind, but my job as a pattern maker is sort of the mind reader and the interpreter of your idea because I can have four meetings in a day and they all are very different customers. And it can even come down to somebody saying, oh, you know, we might have a guy who's 27 come into the business and say, you know, I want to do a pair of shorts, you know. So, great. Who's your customer? Oh, it's me. I'm like, I don't know you. I don't know whether you are from the country or you're from Chapel Street or you're from Brunswick or you're on South Bank. Those Mm -hmm. four customers have got a very different idea of style and fashion and the way they wear things. And so I need to understand who that person is. So I say, oh, okay, yeah. So it's kind of a little bit baggy, a bit preppy or, you know, you're a little bit more hipster or you're a bit more Aaron Williams. So yeah. Understanding who that is because uh, our special talent, I guess, as a pattern maker is creating the pattern that then ends up with that garment and that particular look. So often if you've experienced as a designer that your pattern maker didn't quite get it, well, sometimes it's the pattern maker. Absolutely, there's pattern makers that, that don't quite get it. But sometimes it's also what the information they were given. And so we really love helping people nail it first time. That's, to me, yeah. that's a sign of success. If we can get it right the first time, it means we've received the right information to be able to give you back the right garment the first yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. And in my experience, that definitely happens. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, um, I'm just going to take it back a step. How did you decide what you were going to offer? You were saying earlier that it was something that you noticed that was missing in the market. 
So originally we were just pattern makers and sample makers. So we didn't offer mm -hmm. production in the beginning. Uh, and I was really hesitant to go down the road of production because it is really tough in Australia. It is getting much easier. I think that the general market is becoming more comfortable with the cost of Australia-made garments and the understanding if it's explained to them why it costs that much. But mm -hmm. in the beginning, yep. it was really hard and we were competing really closely with China or Vietnam or Sri Lanka or India. And so I thought, I don't really want to be, I think it's a race to the bottom to try and compete with those countries. And so over the 13 years, I have definitely seen an evolution of people understanding locally made product. So in the beginning, just pattern making and sample making. I was originally a manual pattern maker and we moved to computer pattern making in the first sort of three years of business. And it was really just what the customer was asking for. So, you know, as everyone, when they're starting out in business, they always say, well, how do I get customers? I just called people in the yellow pages until somebody yeah. said, yeah, I need a pattern maker. And I would call and call and call. And then there was, you know, there's times in business where you do something because someone's asked you to do, and then you quickly say, no, 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 I'm not doing that again. That was a disaster. For yeah. us, that has been production management. So yep. we sort of dabbled in the area of organising the production for external manufacturers who were doing things cheaper. And what we found is that the quality that we were receiving was not up to the standard that we produce. Yeah. And so then what happened was I would have to have these really difficult conversations with the manufacturer saying, all of the labels are upside down. I'm not paying for that. Or all of these seams need to be re-sewn. I can't pay for that. And so then I would damage a relationship with the manufacturer because mm. of their lack of quality when I knew yeah. that we could produce it better in-house. And so uh, we would fix it, but then the invoice wouldn't get paid and, you know, it was just very messy. So I thought, no, we're only going to offer production when we can control the quality and our machinists yeah. that we have are incredible quality. And so it's been an they evolution. They are incredible. To really, and really beautiful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm very proud and very happy that we have three amazing machinists. It's taken me a long time to find good machinists like they are that can do yeah. full garments and small run production. We do dabble in doing manufacturing for people outside our mentoring program, but that's another area that I kind of quickly race back to just offering it for our mentees and past mentees. And that mm -hmm. is mainly because you are taught how to present your production information. So I don't have yeah. to, you know, drag it out like pulling teeth. I go, fantastic, Sarah needs a jacket. She knows how to organise the fabric. We've got the labels. We've got the make sheet. We've got the cut sheet. Everything's here. Easy. Instead of going through the process of, um, have you got your labels? Where are they being placed? Yeah. <laughs> Do you have exactly. enough fabric? What are your ratios? Do you understand that the ratios aren't right? There's just so many levels of knowledge that's needed. And that's that's what's, you know, beautiful about working with our clients that we've trained you to be the perfect client. <laughs> and that's where I was going to go next is you do something that is quite clever in that you educate your own clients. So tell us about the course that you like your clients to go through. Yes. So we have a, a course called the Fashion Label Launchpad. It has been running for about eight years and that mm -hmm. was something that we created as a need in the market because um, Sample Room started in 2009, which is around the same time as Instagram and Facebook and Pinterest started not sure yeah. if anyone remembers a time before they had been created. I do, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had a huge influx of startups coming to us because you could now have instant access to your clients. Before social media started, it was pretty much impossible to start your own business. Yeah. Um, you had to have a lot of money behind you because you need to go straight into wholesale and make big numbers or straight into retail and have your own store. So the marketplace changed really quickly, but we found that so many people who came to us, they just didn't know what to do and they would stop within two months. They'd say, this is too hard, yeah. Julia. Everyone I speak to, I feel stupid and they're asking me questions. I don't know the answers. I just, I can't do it. And I think, wow, you had such a fantastic idea. If I could just teach you how to get through that six-month cycle, then you would continue as a regular customer. So that's how mm. it started. And we used to do it around... A our cutting table once a month just for a group of six people and then people interstate started asking about it so then we recorded it online um, and the last year I have been 
recording and editing like a crazy person because I have so much information and I want to get the new version out of how the market has changed. Yeah. Yeah. So the Fashion Label Launchpad is a year-long full support mentoring and education program. And for anyone who was a startup, that's how we work with them through that program. It's an amazing program, if I do say so myself. (laughs) And we have huge success. We have never had a startup outside that program launch. Um, And yet we launch people two or three every month through the program. And I've done the course and I can recommend it. And I have been working (laughs) with Julia for years. So, (laughs) And it's wonderful. And I just love the success that people have. Because if you can eliminate the roadblocks that happen in that development and manufacturing process, then you can concentrate on what you need to concentrate on, which is sales and marketing. And then you're Absolutely. just going through the same repeat process of, okay, I know how to put a design brief together. I know how to source fabric and trims. I know what the steps are and you go the whole way through. But if anyone's interested, we do have a masterclass which we run each week, which is called the Manufacturing Discovery Masterclass, which starts talking about some of those things and gives people a bit of guidance on the ground roots level and introduces them to that program. And um, Julia, let's go there. What challenges do you face between Australian made and offshore? What what are some of the things that people come to you with? We have a lot of people come to us who have had a tech pack made first. Mm -hmm. That one's top of mind. And it's really sad because people spend, you know, $600, $2,000, $1,000 on this document and they think that this document is going to solve everything. And so we talk about this in our masterclass. The problem with a tech pack made before a garment is made is it's really just a it's really a wish and a hope sort of thing. It's yeah. taken from, you know, random things. It might be, oh, I think that's long enough, or I've got a t-shirt which I've worn and washed a hundred times that I love, and I'll measure that. There's all sorts of things. But you really are reliant on the quality of the measurements that are given and the quality of the pattern maker who is going to interpret those measurements. So it's still going through a development process. Some people think when they get a tech pack made, they can jump straight to production. But there's a big chunk of development in between, which you know very well. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, you're going to receive a garment that needs to be fitted and comments made to send back to the factory. And if you're not qualified to do that, you're never really going to get the right result. When you're dealing with a pattern maker locally, you would have a design meeting and you'd discuss that and then they would use their blocks or the garments they have to help you interpret that idea. So it's a very different process. A tech pack is still important as a document, but it's created as the pattern and the sample are created. So that's probably the biggest problem that we try and solve for people is explain why that is there is a difference between those two and I see people all the time on social media saying I'm doing tech packs and they have like 150 comments and I think no don't waste your money (laughs) it's not because no one likes to waste money and I hate people wasting money there is a certain process to go through that is the most cost efficient way to get the result that you want with less frustration. Yeah, absolutely. What do you say to people, Julia, when they come to you and ask about the cost difference between Australian made and offshore? Well, I love this question. We actually have done a webinar a couple of times and I'm probably going to do it around Fashion Revolution Week again about the true cost of offshore versus onshore Mm. because there's a lot of unknowns in this and it really boils down to the fact that you're not comparing apples with apples. When we look at what the price that is given by an Australian manufacturer compared to the price given by an offshore manufacturer, no matter what country, they don't factor in offshore the parcels back and forth in your development process, uh, the freight costs, the quality issues that people have. People will mm-hmm. often lose 30, 40, 50% of their stock due to faults. And they're kind of like, dirty little secrets of the industry that people don't really talk about. So I like to compare apples to apples and we do that in this other webinar that we do. And it really shows that it is on a par between local and overseas. It's just no one realises that until it's too late. Yeah, they only ever talk about the unit cost. Mm -hmm. They don't factor in all of those other components. And, you know, from my personal experience, I was extremely fortunate because the factory that I used was recommended to me by someone else who'd actually already 
probably gone through some of the heartache of, I know that they received a box of shirts that they had to sit around their boardroom table and decide, can we actually sell these or will it be damaging to our brand? And they threw them out. Yep. So that would have been several thousand dollars. Yes. That was thrown out. You know, from my personal experience, again, whilst the quality of the fabric and the quality of the sewing that I received was beautiful. It was really lovely, great quality. My dresses were very two-dimensional. They weren't the three-dimensional with maybe like a bit of fitting around the bust or around your hip. They were very two-dimensional and that comes from measuring everything flat. You also had to get such large quantities, like in the vicinity of 200, but when they purchased the fabric, they don't want to have any leftovers because that's assigned to you. And if there's enough fabric to make 240 dresses, then you end up paying for 240 dresses because they use all the fabric, they make it, and they won't send it unless you've paid your invoice. So you have no choice but to pay for those extras. Otherwise, your shipment won't come. So I was really, yeah, really fortunate in regards to the quality But there are all those little hidden things that people just, you know, they don't talk about, like you say. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. There are so many things. I mean, a quantity of 200 or 240 of one style, when you're starting out, if you haven't got a follower, it's going to take you like three years to sell. And then who's going to come back to your website and go, oh, you've still got that same dress again? Oh, I want something new. I want something fresh. What we really try and help people understand is that In the beginning, it's sort of like marketing. So we actually, for our mentees, we go down to a run of 20 per style, per colour, over four sizes. Because the idea is that you get something out there, you get the interest, and then you repeat that. You might repeat it in a different colour. You might do the same colour. You might do a run of 50, and then you build up. And then you might do a run of 100 as you build up your following. But you have turnover in your store. You have a reason to email people. You've got something interesting on your Instagram feed. So people go, that's fresh and that's new. And even though that run of 20, the cost does hurt. Yeah. No one's, it's not designed for anybody to make any money. It's about getting your product out there and building up and experimenting. You know, we had a client just recently who made the mistake of wanting to go cheaper on their fabric, thinking that going cheaper on their product was better, but the fabric didn't perform the way they wanted to. And they're just thankful they only have 20 and they don't have 200. Yeah, exactly. And I only ever do the run of 20 if I'm designing something completely new that I want to check. But, that you know, there's one particular blouse that I make, which is the Libby top. And I have sold out of that top over and over and over again. Where at the first run, when I did 20 of them, I was thinking, oh, my God, I'm never going to make any money out of this top. But it's good to test it because if it didn't go well, then you have the opportunity to, you know, recoup your money and go again. Absolutely. And you can get feedback from your clients on fit and design. You can change and tweak those things as you go through. And it's so important when you're starting a label and, you know, customers love it when you take that feedback and improve your product. That, you know, that's repeat customers and loyal customers right there. Absolutely. So, Julia, how do you go about getting your business name out there? And I feel like the answer to this is, you get recommendations from your current customers. (laughs) Well, I get them from current customers. I get them from industry, uh, a Mm -hmm. lot of manufacturers and also other designers in the industry. And I have a friend who I see quite often at industry events and she always says to me every time, oh, Julia, we love Sample Room because anytime someone starts asking just too many questions, I say go to Sample Room. And so we're known for the place to help startups. A lot of companies, it's just, it's too much work that they have not factored into their business model. Um, yeah. And you need that quite structured in education and support program in, in order to do it. So if somebody is not set up to do that, then it's just too much hard work not going to do that, which is why a lot of startups don't receive emails back, don't receive phone calls back, because it takes about a millisecond to understand someone's a startup. 
And we're really open to it because we've worked out the way to do it. So uh, we're probably one of the few people in the industry who are really super open to working with startups so that we can help support them through that. Well, you're extremely patient with people like me because whilst I've done your course and have been working with you for years, every now and then I'll still say, oh, you know that thingy, like that that bit, like can we just... So I don't have the language down pat at all. That is fine. We've got people who have been in business for 10 years and they still are writing notes madly in meetings, learning new words. That's easy. A new word every now and then is easy. There's a huge chunk of work in the beginning to help support people and give them that foundation knowledge. Um, But we we love it, you know. And Kate, who's sitting a couple of seats away from me, is giving you a wave. Hi, Kate. Gosh, I was going to say, I've been a uh, professional engineer for 15 years and even in my engineering world, I still say, can we sort out that thing? So, I think it's totally fine. (laughs) So, Julia, do you have any more ideas in the pipes? What's next for Sample Room or are you just going to stay your path? So many ideas, so little time. I mean, we have a sister business called Pattern Room. It's a bit of a passion project of mine. And it was really put together, oh, I think I started Pattern Room about eight years ago originally, because I know that there's a lot of people that just need a t-shirt. They just need a jumper. They just need a pair of tracksuit pants. And I didn't have the time to take on all the clients who just needed a t-shirt. So I thought, I know how to design and make a t-shirt fit really well. If I have that as a stock service, then people can choose from whether they want a tight or a slim or a regular t-shirt. And that website is very much targeted to the custom sportswear industry Mm -hmm. because they have a really big issue in themselves that they can't find good pattern makers and they end up with, you know, 3,000 patterns in their library of which nothing really goes together. So the Pattern Room website, for that custom sportswear industry. It can be for fashion as well. It's not exclusive to custom sportswear. They're able to build up their library in a way that's really efficient, cost efficient and works for them. And that is for people all around the world. So we've got customers in Alaska and oh, we've got a map over there, South America, South Africa, Istanbul, you know, all mm-hmm. over the world people are buying patterns on that website. I've used a pattern for a pattern room. You do? For a men's shirt. Yeah. We use them quite often as a basis because we know that they work and we know that they fit. So often yeah. if you're a customer in Sample Room, we start with a pattern room base and then we can make those alterations, but they are available on that website to buy, download, use, have printed off, have a sample made. We do know that the website is a little bit overwhelming. There's currently 216,449 designs. Holy, I thought you were going to say there was about 3,000, not over 200,000. It's crazy. And it is a little bit difficult to find what you need. And that's something that we're working on. So this year, we've got a bit of a project to create a bit of interface for that website so that it's easier to find what you need. And we're also working on a women's sports uniform project at the moment within that website because women's sport, they need better patterns. They need better fitting garments. Yes, and I was literally looking at the women's cricket uniform this week and I was thinking if I played cricket, there's no way I would be able to wear those pants. I know. I just did a project yesterday on this. What I found through my investigation, they're very low rise. Okay. But also quite boxy. And Mm. I'm looking to speak to some people in women's cricket to find out, is that what you like or is that just because they have interpreted a men's pant for women and that's how they've worked out the best way to make it fit for a female? Yeah, because cricket pants or cricket white long pants, they're a men's pant. They just are. And it doesn't matter if you're a size 8 or a size 14. Women's hips and legs are a different shape. And there Absolutely. is no reason that you can't have a cricket white that just has a little bit more shape around the hip. It's a it's a huge market. There's a lot of um, money going into it at the moment to help improve women's sports uniforms because there's a lot of studies that have been done that women stop playing sport primarily because of the clothes. Yeah, right. Wow. Yeah. So well, that's so exciting. Yes. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> and um, one thing I like to ask, Julia, is do you have a hack for the listeners? Do you have a small business hack that you could share? 
Yes. Oh, I've got so I'm very systemized. Comes from yeah. my engineering brain, Sarah, as you know. Yeah. And yeah. so we are a very systemized business. One of the things that I have I started way back 13 years ago is I create a manual of information. So whatever I'm doing, if I know that I'm going to do it again at some stage, I'll write up a process. Sometimes yep. that's for me so that I can remember how to do it next time. So I don't have to store that information in my brain. And it's also really great if you are going to eventually employ someone else. So you can say, yes, there's yeah. the instructions. Because some people do like following instructions, some don't. It's often a bit of a test for us when we're employing someone if they're very systemized. But I find that's a really great way to keep track of things. And I've had a few different versions of that. You know, you can do a Google Wiki which is a free program that allows you to create this document, which is like a, a manual for your workroom. Yeah, beautiful. I'm totally on board with that. I think that's a great tip because even though, you know, and that probably comes from my engineering background as well, is we always have a work instruction mm-hmm. so that people just, you know, and that's mainly to do with productivity and also safety of our people. But and, you know, if there's an, an incident or an injury, then a learning might go into that document. But I've had that ingrained into me over the years and I even do that myself. Um, I think that is such a great tip. And uh, the, the other reason I do that is because I had a few experiences working in the fashion industry where you get a job and you go into that job and then no one has the time to teach you anything. So you're really yeah. floundering for a long time. And I just think that's really inefficient and doesn't make you as an employee feel comfortable about doing your job to the best of its ability. So I think if you can eliminate that by saying, here's a welcome page, these are the things you'll need to know in week one, week two, week three, here are the manuals, then people feel really empowered to do the best thing that they can in their job. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's nothing worse than going somewhere when people don't have the time to explain what you need to be doing. You just feel uncomfortable from the get-go. Absolutely. And you just feel like you're failing and that's not a good start. Not a good start at all. Oh, but Julia, thank you so much. I've enjoyed talking to you so much as always. And if anybody is looking for Sample Room, where can they find you? You can find us at sampleroom.com.au. I'm also doing Instagram lives every Thursday at 10.30 on our Instagram account, Sample Room. Um, yeah, come and check us out. Amazing. I hope that anybody who is looking for an end-to-end manufacturing um, Australian-made business finds you. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Sarah. It's so good to talk to you again. All right, it's time for today's wrap-up snap quiz. Okay. Sarah, do you think of yourself as a problem solver? Yes, yep, I am a problem solver. A good problem solver? Yeah, I think I am. It's been my whole career to this point, problem solving. It's my jam. Am I a problem solver? Yes, you are a problem solver. Is it a good mix that yourself and I are gun problem solvers? No, no, it's not at all. Is it creating a problem? (laughs) It can sometimes. Especially when I'm right. (laughs) Oh, no, sometimes it can cause a big problem because I'm quite self-sufficient and because of my mining background, you know, I am able to drive heavy machinery. I can operate power tools. I can pretty much do anything that I would want to do and that's sort of your domain. So, when I step over into your mechanic area, it can cause quite a problem, can't it? Yeah, and then when I go and try and teach our son how to crack a whip... And I'm not the best at it. And then you come out and go. <laughs> That's where yeah, we're at. That actually happened, yeah. Okay, so the anyway. um, the last question. I know it's usually only three, but today mm-hmm. um, we'll add another one in. Yeah. Some people, not myself, but some people like to start fixing the problem or problem solving before they've listened to the whole problem. Is that a problem? Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, you know, particularly if you're dealing with another person, Mm -hmm. you need to actually take the time to listen to them and understand what their problem is because, you know, 
one thing I believe to be true, I've read it somewhere, is that when you are focusing on what your answer is going to be, you're not actually listening and focusing on what the person is saying. So, Mm -hmm. you might be trying to formulate the answer in your mind, which means you can't possibly be taking in what they're saying and therefore you might be trying to solve something that is not actually their problem. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it's definitely good to slow down and listen to what they need help with before you jump into problem-solving mode. And that, people, is not as easy as it sounds. Is it, Brian? No. Because I have this little voice in my head that is just going 500 kilometers an hour. And even as Sarah was saying that stuff, I was just thinking, what am I going to say now? This is the next <laughs> thing I have to say. I have to tell her what it is. My brain does not stop. Well, you need to start meditating or something. Yeah. So, it, it gets bad. Even like I'll be reading a book and the next minute my brain's off thinking about something else. It's it's just a bit weird. Each and every we'll person. We'll do a little bit of problem solving and we'll work out how to sort that out for you, Brian. We'll <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for uh, tuning in today. I hope you've enjoyed our chat with Julia. And make sure you do jump online at the Ecom Hub and send us a message. We love hearing from you all. And take care. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to All Things Small Biz. You can get more tips and find out about all the latest stuff we've got going on at the All Things Small Biz Instagram page. We'd love you to follow us. Or you can jump onto the website, www.allthingssmallbizpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. Listener.